0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and engagement manager here at Back Bay, Christian Tino. Christian, welcome. Thanks, Pete. It's a pleasure as always. Indeed. Indeed. So, today's topic is some of the trends we are seeing in the cardiology space. So, for those of you that have been following the field for many years, we saw pharma companies deprioritizing cardiovascular disease, and a general shift towards specialty therapeutic areas like oncology, immunology, rheumatology, neurology. However, recently, we've observed a flurry of activity in CV indications across large pharma, which is also reflected anecdotally in some of our discussions that we've been having with business development and corporate development groups. Historically, cardiology has been one of the cornerstones of large pharma portfolios, but in the late 2000s through the 2010s, we saw many pharma companies and investors either shying away or entirely deprioritizing cardiology as a focus area. Some notable examples were Pfizer in 2009 and Sanofi in 2019. However, if you look at some of the clinical stage pipeline across cardiology these days, it looks like more of a who's who of major industry players. So today we want to dive a bit deeper into this and some of our thoughts about what's driving the renewed interest in cardiovascular disease. So, Christian, maybe you could set the stage a bit more on what we've been seeing in this space. Sure. Thanks, Pete. I think there are two key kind of trends that we've noticed, um,
1: you know, as Pete mentioned in our recent work and, and you know, and sort of observing the space. I think one of the key ones is that the interest from pharma is predominantly, you know, as a, as as Pete has mentioned, shifted towards specialty-like approaches. But that's also translated into the cardiology space. So really thinking more about therapeutics pursuing a single target that has a clear implication and a well-defined indication or at least a subset of a larger indication which obviously has a lot of implications as it relates to development timelines risk of clinical trials and I think we'll we'll touch on some of those things in some more detail a bit later um I think additionally there's been a lot of interest in you know opportunities focused on you know quote unquote advanced modalities um, which you know we'll define as therapeutics that are pursuing you know, largely genetic targets with technologies such as antisense oligonucleotides, small interfering RNA or siRNAs, gene therapies, and the like. Um, So I think, you know, that's a really unique difference from, you know, I think when you historically think about cardiology, you think about, you know, small molecules, old kind of, you know, generics and that sort of thing, where we've really seen this shift towards specialty indications and applications,
0: as well as kind of advanced technology types. And certainly that latter point is something that we're getting asked a lot from clients that, you know, may have a platform technology within that, you know, domain that we're calling advanced modalities and sort of them asking us, you know, what should our perspective be on cardiovascular disease? And and maybe we'll talk a bit about that as as the conversation goes goes on so so maybe you could just provide a little perspective on on you know what changed in the cardiology field to precipitate this sort of shift in interest sure sure you know I
1: think um, as we've mentioned a lot of this activity is focused on kind of disease modifying targets in well-defined populations and moving away from more of the kind of symptomatic approaches in cardiology that that we've seen historically um, and I think you know one of the Key examples, and it's you know, obviously been covered and, and discussed a lot. But I think you could argue that PCSK9 inhibitors in familial hypercholesterolemia were really the pathfinder for for this type of of an approach. You know, those therapies target a genetic subset of what is otherwise a humongous patient population. Um, you know, high cholesterol and elevated cholesterol levels are you know one of the mm-hmm. most prevalent sort of diseases in. in that exist. Uh, and one of the key differences there was that by looking at a sort of genetically defined subset and pursuing a, you know, an implicated target, they're also able to pursue a relatively high price point relative to other cardiology drugs, again, with more of that kind of specialty type focus. And of course, those you know are monoclonal antibody, or at least the, you know, the sort of initial ones were monoclonal antibody-based therapies, which was a very novel approach in, again, a field that's that's largely been dominated by small molecules for years and years and years. Obviously, there were, you know, anyone who has tracked PCSK9 inhibitors would would know that they were not, uh, you know, immediately successful. You know, Amgen and Sanofi have been, you know, they sort of struggled with initial commercialization there. I think that moving cardiologists towards sort of accepting, you know, these sort of new types of therapies that, that are... A little bit more expensive, you know, a little bit different than what they're currently used to was, you know, took quite a bit of effort. And then obviously there's been a lot of, you know, back and forth about intellectual property, who has rights to the target antibodies and all that sort of thing, which continues, uh, continues to play out. Mm-hmm. But I think what's, what's become clear is that the cardiology field has really become comfortable with these types of approaches. And, you know, you have consensus forecasts for Repatha, which is, you know, Amgen's product crossing, you know, 2 billion by 2026. So, you know, clearly there's, there's yeah. a lot of anticipation for kind of continued success within that, within that space. Interesting. Yeah. Sort of along those same lines, you know, one of the other key advancements along that has been, you know, Novartis's Lecvio, which, you know, they acquired via mm-hmm. their acquisition of the medicines company in 2019 for, for 10 billion million, which again was, I think... You know, one of the you know key shifting elements of the tide here in cardiology, which uh, you know is interesting because it's a a small interfering RNA against PCSK9, Um, and again, it's another sort of leap forward in terms of technological complexity, and also introduces some additional challenges on the cardiology side in terms of you know it's a sort of uh, infused product that requires buy-in bill, which again is an additional layer of something that uh, you know a lot of at least in the U.S. you know physicians are not. Cardiologists have not been familiar with historically, yeah. uh, which has been another interesting, interesting challenge there. And then on the on the other side, you've seen a lot of oral therapies targeting PCSK9. You know, both Merck and AstraZeneca have orals in in the pipeline that they're developing towards PCSK9. Then we also have gene therapies looking at at this target. So you see, you know, Verve Therapeutics and CRISPR, you know, both actively yeah. looking at this area. And I think that's one of their more advanced kind of non rare disease uh, targets. Um, looking at like, PCSK9. So. Tremendous amount of activity here in a space that, you know, 10 years ago, there, really, there was really nothing in. And, you know, now you have five plus large pharma that might be having marketed products within the next three or four years. So very, uh, yeah. very interesting dynamics there.
0: So, so maybe thinking about some of the interest in deals we've been seeing in the ASO and, and SIRNA and, and gene therapy space, what do you think is sort of driving the interest they're specifically within the domain of of cardiovascular disease.
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the key things has been, you know, there've been a lot of examples of, you know, ASO and siRNA products just having a pretty strong ability to hit disease-modifying targets reliably Mm -hmm. um, and have a relatively acceptable safety profile as well. I think, you know, you look at a lot of the work that alnylam has done sort of in in ATTR, I think that's sort of validated that mechanism quite a bit. You see those products in other sort of rare disease applications as well, where I think that there's been a lot of interest in the rare disease side for those types of therapies. And I think you have this same sort of view here where, you know, as we're sort of uncovering more of a genetic understanding of some of these cardiovascular diseases, you know, we have a pretty good tool in some of these siRNAs and ASOs, at least, you know, in relative terms, to target some of these genetic targets, you know, versus, again, trying mm-hmm. to control symptoms or, or that sort of thing, which you know has, has certainly been much more appealing to, to the large pharmacide uh, in, in recent years.
0: Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the specific disease areas or that, that you know, people are, are sort of jockeying and trying to deploy these um, assets towards you know thinking about you know the the LP little A story sure
1: sure so i think the LP little A one you know is 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 quite interesting just given that i think it really builds off of what the sort of PCSK9 story has demonstrated in terms of a novel target based approach you know improved patient selection and the like um you know i think one of the really interesting pieces of the LP little A side has been it's, you know, there are multiple different ASOs and SRNAs looking at at that space. And it's really kind of the predominant or preeminent modality, I guess you could say, um, so <laughs> far in terms of in terms of, you know, looking at, at that target. And that would be a much larger population than, you know, familial hypercholesterolemia, um, looking at sort of the kind of initial data on how widespread kind of overexpression of LP little a is in the general population. So, you know, as as you kind of mentioned, we've been looking into that space quite a bit, and there's been a lot of activity um, on the big pharma side there sort of consolidating the lead being sort of Novartis and their partnership with Ionis there, they have the sort of the most advanced LP little a asset, Mm Pelman Carson. Um, Currently in phase three studies, it's in, I think, an eight or 9,000 patient phase three. Really, you know, obviously that is a very important study in terms of, you know, validating that specific product. But I think the other interesting point is that, you know, that would be the sort of first large, you know, cardiovascular outcome study, looking at the impact of LP little a um, you know, in a large patient population, and would really go a long way to validate that target, I think, as well. So there's quite a bit of a, an impact on other potential therapies and just looking at that target as well coming out of that out of that study. I think the really interesting thing, too, is that Novartis, I think a couple months ago announced yeah. an additional deal with ionis for a next generation aso targeting lp little a and they were kind of vague on what the details were i think it's still a you know preclinical or early you know early stage program but the i think the idea in terms of the the rumor mill has been that there's a more kind of mm-hmm. convenient dosing regimen and some other potential improvements in you know administration or convenience there which i think you know s- s- speaks a lot to the level of confidence that you know, certainly sure. Novartis has in this space, but they're also you know, making multiple bets, thinking about these additional, you know, what are some of the more traditional lifecycle management type approaches among having an improved, you know, whatever it's a dosing profile, safety, whatever, yeah. whatever it might be. So, um, very interesting there, at least in terms of only what Novartis is doing. And in addition to that, you have several other companies that are, that are also looking at this. Sure. So you have Amgen's deal that they did with Arrowhead a few years ago, looking at Alpazaran, which has also had pretty good data so far. It's basically right behind the Novartis asset. Then you have Silence Therapeutics, Lilly. They also have phase two programs that are, that are ASOs or SIRNAs you know, among those modalities. Lilly has an oral LP little a. So you're seeing quite a lot of, a lot of focus on the area.
0: Yeah yeah there must be plenty of confidence, at least from a target perspective, if you have a couple of these players making multiple bets within the same modality or across a couple of different modalities. Yeah. And I
1: think, yeah, you know, speaking of multiple bets along, Different modalities. Uh, you know, we mentioned Lily has is, is sort of both in the ASOSIRNA game as well as an oral. Mm-hmm. And they had a, they have a partnership going with VERVE Therapeutics, which again we mentioned on the PCSK9 side, looking at you know gene therapies targeting LP little A based on you know VERVE's base editing technology. So again, continued interest in you know not only advanced modalities, but again it's, as we were talking about multiple different bets in terms of. You know, whether and, and again, I think one of the interesting things to see play out here is how, you know, are they thinking about that purely from a risk management point of view, that okay, we yeah. want to have, you know, yeah. three or four different sort of shots on goal here? Or is are they thinking about, you know, multiple different, you know, types of patient populations or use cases that they're yeah, thinking about. products. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which I think is a really interesting element of this and and is yet to see how that how that kind of evolves. Just given, you know, given the size of the market, I think it's feasible to to consider that they are potentially thinking about that type of a strategy where it is, you know, patient profile X yeah. maybe is more relevant for the ASO-sirna therapy, profile Y, maybe for oral therapy, et cetera, et cetera. But, but again, I think, you know, a really interesting and sort of notable phenomenon here that it's not only in this space, right? We talked about it in
0: PCSK9s. You see it in a few other areas. It's very interesting. Yeah. And even though we're talking about a specific sort of target and we could talk about patient segmentation, right? Those that have high LPA or not, but, you know, this is still a big patient population that we're right. talking about at the end of the day, given the burden of disease, particularly in the United States. So, so, again, where a lot of these drugs have been and are being developed in the rare disease space, how, you know, what sort of considerations make this different? When, uh, you know, moving forward from the traditional rare disease playbook for an ASO or an siRNA or gene sure. therapy. Sure. I think
1: that's a really important question to think about here. And I think there's sort of two two big differences. You know, I, th- I think that the first one is I think that there's a, a big question about whether there's a higher sort of bar for safety or off target toxicity or off target editing. If we're talking about, you know, gene editing approaches or or what have you. Just given that, you know, if you think about the more typical. You know, I guess you know traditional uh, indications for these therapies and yeah. rare diseases. You're generally talking about indications that have very few effective options, if anything at all. There is a relatively you know small patient population that is you know generally seen by uh, you know select number of specialist physicians. Right, there's a lot mm-hmm. of concentration there, and I think that there's a lot of general thought around you know, if something comes to market here, we're very excited about it and would sort of rapidly uptake and use that that therapy. Yeah. Even if there's a risk benefit profile that has quite a bit on, on the risk side and sure, sure. safety side. That said, you know, here, if we're talking about a population that, you know, has a sort of elevated potentially level of LP little a, which again, we'll see how, how validated that becomes as a target. I think we're not necessarily talking about, you know, near term uh, adverse effects or outcomes and that sort of thing where you would be willing to accept some substantial amount of risk in terms of whether it's the editing, the toxicity that goes along with that. Or, or, or what have you? so I think that having a really you know clean safety profile is going to be really important for some of these advanced modalities coming to these larger indications where there's not sort of a, such an immediate level of yeah. urgency I guess in in you know treating with something that's both very effective and potentially yeah. very risky as well. I think I alluded to the, the other point here is that you're talking about a much more you know expansive call point in terms of the treating position as well, which is also sure. is important. I you know, you think about if you're a you know, company developing gene therapies that are focused on rare diseases, and you're thinking about, you know, getting towards phase two, phase three and commercializing. I think if you think about, you know, okay, we're going to commercialize independently in the US, that's something that's very feasible for a company looking at rare diseases, because you're not talking about a huge effort in terms of developing that infrastructure. Whereas if you're looking at a cardiology indication like this, um, you know, that's really not, that's not a trivial pursuit in terms of, uh, you know, the level of investment required and staffing and all that to, to establish, a, you know, a cardiology sales force is a completely different universe of, of strategy. So, yeah. uh, I think very interesting in terms of how those play out and will that continue to sort of go through large pharma is an interesting phenomenon to, to see.
0: Yeah, I think it, it, it's interesting to think about in this realm, it's not only the positioning of these modalities against, you know, your traditional Small molecule oral,s like statins, right. right? And there's a lot written about whether or not they even work for people with elevated yeah. LP little A. But then, sort of the jockeying within an ASO or an siRNA, and sort of the question, maybe for a gene therapy or a gene editing approach, do you want that? Normally, in sort of a rare disease, you know, it's sort of a self-evident question that you know, pricing and reimbursement and and you know, safety, efficacy profile. Notwithstanding, sort of, you know, getting that edit would be better long term, potentially, than than a chronic dosing. But I think, given you've got a much different type of patient, much different uh, call point, much different, you know, level of risk from any number of stakeholders, physician payers, patients, you know, that value of a gene therapy or an editing uh, based approach versus. An ASO or an siRNA is sort of an interesting existential philosophical question, I guess. And again, you also alluded to something that as we've been diving into the field was interesting to hear from a lot of the equity research we've been reading and and potentially, you know, shouldn't be too surprising uh, is is sort of getting some of these physicians more familiar with the buy and build business model of deploying these therapeutics you know, which has been historically something that, uh, you know, those in the oncology, rheumatology field are are very comfortable with. It just hasn't been part of the the cardiology physician business
1: model. Exactly. I think we we could spend another session just talking about kind of the market access side of all this and how that winds up looking. But I completely agree that these are having that, you know, even though there are A lot of different ways that sort of have been developed, you know, whether it's through group purchasing organizations or whatever to sort of manage that cash flow and inventory stuff. I think even just the fact of having to do that from a, you know, operation point of view is is something that, you know, a cardiologist, as you mentioned, is really not not part of their historical, you know, uh, needs of their practice.
0: So, yeah, yeah. So, so we've been talking a lot about uh, LP little a. How about other areas in cardiology that have is sort of uh, uh, seen some interest? You also mentioned sort of ATTR yep. as as one of the first examples.
1: Yeah. So, I think uh, ATTR is an interesting one because, you know, you generally think about, you know, some of the, the therapies that are there. You know, we mentioned alnylam a bit earlier, really on the sort of more kind of the neuro side. You know, you think about some of the, the other assets that are out there looking at ATTR associated cardiomyopathy um, has, has also become a, a pretty prominent area of interest. Um, you know, we mentioned, uh, you know, right at the outset, you know, Pfizer was one of the companies that had deprioritized cardiology R&D back in, you know, late, late 2000s. And, you know, they're one of the, you know, they have a marketed product in this indication now. So obviously, sure. you know, their, their focus has, has kind of changed there. But I think, you know, as we mentioned at the outset as well, this is one where it is, again, more of a. Specialized type of focus, yeah. here know, ATTR being a rare disease and associated cardiomyopathy within that, you'd have multiple different products, you know, looking looking at that. So obviously the kind of Vindiquel, VindaMax from Pfizer, Almylam, you know, is is pursuing, uh, I think that they've you know, recently submitted data to, to FDA on some of their data for OnPatro here, you know, AstraZeneca and BridgeBio have a partnership looking mm-hmm. at, at this area. And there are, you know, multiple other assets looking at this as well. And one of the interesting things that I think, you know, and this is maybe more on the anecdotal side of what we've seen is that from kind of the more, I guess, you know, smaller emerging growth company side or thinking about cardiology investments as you're maybe on the investor side of things, looking at these types of opportunities where, you know, we're not necessarily talking about a large cardiology indication from the Mm get-go, but some sort of, you know, involved, you know, obviously in a few of these diseases, DMD and other dystrophies are another example where cardiomyopathy is what generally is driving a lot of mortality and reduced lifespan yeah. in these, or ultimately in, in, in these patients, thinking about those types of indications as kind of a proof of concept for, you know, novel approaches in cardiology is a really interesting sort of pathway into maybe thinking about larger cardiology opportunities down the road. I think that that's not necessarily what the strategy looks like in, you know, some of these ATTR associated cardiomyopathy assets, just given that that market as a standalone, I think is, you know, certainly. Uh, At least a number of pharma companies do that as viable. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, from a broader strategic standpoint, this is another sort of avenue into cardiology that I think we've seen a lot more interest in recently, where looking at some of these, again, more circumscribed subsets of populations, you know, even within a rare disease, validating a potential target that might be implicated in cardiomyopathy. You know, ideally, if it's a genetic one, I think that's even better in terms of sort of a disease modifying target. But really, that that being a way into cardiology as, as opposed to okay, we're going after you know hypertension from the get go. I think that that's um, yeah an interesting interesting approach.
0: Great. So we've covered a lot here, but in, any other interesting assets or trends on the horizon that you want to sort of close with? Yeah, I, I think um, you know I touched, uh,
1: he's mentioned hypertension kind of in passing, but you know there is another you know Alnilem is in that space and just recently announced partnership with Roche there. Um, you know targeting. Mm-hmm sort of a a gene that produces basically all forms of angiotensin. And I think they just had strong phase two data earlier this week or a couple weeks ago. So that's another one I think certainly want to keep an eye on in terms of, you know, is there potentially a shift in that space as well towards more of these genetic targets and advanced modalities. And then I think would be remiss not to mention, you know, the kind (laughs) of uh, recent sort of type two diabetes and cardiometabolic or metabolic disease uh, um, activity, Um, you know, and, and I think another interesting one there is, you know, Novo- partnering with LifeEdit, uh, sort of developing gene therapies, both for rare, as well as kind of large cardiometabolic indications there. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously as you know, the go and Mujaro's of the like have, have taken off. Um, I think, you know, it would be interesting to see how, how things maybe play out there in terms of whether there's a kind of renewed look at, you know, whether it's, Weight loss, specifically some of the more you know cardiovascular related elements of type two diabetes or, or or what have you, thinking about how some of these advanced modalities might might play a role there. And again, I think it certainly seems like an area where there's been some demonstrated interest from the large pharma side. So sure. it's I think it's an interesting case where you know I think you've had a lot of gene therapy been ASO siRNA companies sort of you know teeing up this kind of promise of moving from lar- rare diseases into larger indications ultimately and more of a genetic medicines type approach yeah. and i think that, that that does seem to be playing out you know very much at least in the in the cardiology space so very uh, yeah. exciting time
0: yes and we probably should note we you know sort of specifically left out obesity as as a topic within this realm because that probably is a a topic for a one or two other podcasts, given sure. everything else going on in the industry. Well, well, thanks, Christian, for getting to the heart of the matter, as it were. I had to slip in a pun for those of you who stuck it out uh, to the end of the podcast. Wouldn't be the Life Sciences Report without one, so uh, I know I went this <laughs> long uh, biting my tongue. So yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how these LPA Little A trials read out in the next year or two, and and whether or not that'll sort of be an additional proof point for further investment and buy-in going forward. So thank you all for for listening to another episode of the Life Science Report. If you have any questions about biopharma and medtech strategic development, partnering, licensing, or more, head over to the podcast page on our website and submit it. That can be found at www.bblsa.com slash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcast. Your question may be the topic of an upcoming podcast, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.